Last week we looked at the story of Galatians and so we actually finished the narrative, Paul's narrative, um, at the end of his first missionary journey. Now this week we're going to start with Paul's second missionary journey and we're going to sort of trace that over the next few weeks as we go through the letters that are attached to that. But before we get to that, I just wanted to, I guess, sort of point out another contextual issue that we should be aware of um, just as we're telling this story and as we're trying to understand um, how Paul's letters fit into all of this and really just especially what was going on uh, in the minds of the believers, um, you know, who these Christians were and really what was at the basis of their of the challenges that they were facing. So the thing to keep in mind is that the Christians that Paul was dealing with, and Paul, even Paul himself, were first-generation Christians. Now, that's a, is an important point for us to keep in mind because, you know, we sit here in 2023 and we've got 2,000 years of Christian history behind us. Now, especially if we live in the West, we've got 2,000 years or certainly the last, the last couple of hundred years of the Judeo-Christian worldview um, underscoring our entire society. You know, if we, when you live in, in the West, you, you just take for granted that there are churches on every corner. There's, you know, you drive through any town and you're going to see churches everywhere, um, at least one, but there's certainly there's going to be a few that are there. And again, unknowingly, we take for granted the just just some of the values that we um, we have as a Western society that are undergirded by that Judeo-Christian worldview. Just values like, um, you know, equality, human dignity, um, you know, just the, the, the individual value of every human being, those are Christian values. These are things that we, again, we take them for granted, but they, they are undergirded by the fact that we have that Christian heritage um, as a part of who we are. So for us, again, we just don't think about this. You know, we, um, we, we just sort of have this as part of the, the milieu in which we live. But for the Christians, including Paul, but the, certainly the people that he was preaching to, um, they were brand new Christians. They, they had never heard of the name of Jesus Christ. So when, when, when Paul was born, Jesus was still a young man. Jesus was not somebody who was even known to anyone apart from his village. Yet when he died, he was... Um, he, he had become the Messiah. Um, you know, there was a moment in the lives of Jesus' disciples where, um, you know, they woke up in the morning and they were living in the old covenant and they went to bed that night and they were in the new covenant. So, you know, the day of Pentecost, they woke up that morning and it was still the old covenant. They went to bed and they were living in the new covenant. They were in, in the brand new way in which God was dealing with human society. I mean, they lived through that single day when all of the world completely changed. So, I mean, that, that was just an extraordinary generation. And for them, the big challenge was, what do we do with this now? The, everything has changed. The way that God interacts with humans has completely changed. And we've got to figure out what that means. We've got to work out how that changes everything about our lives. And so on the one hand, um, for, the, for the Jewish people, it was trying to figure out or, or come to terms with the fact that 
we don't need to do the things we used to do to be the people of God. So, you know, issues like circumcision, for example, but uh, observing Sabbath or kosher or these things that we have weren't just, we didn't just do them because they were, you know, our cultural practice, but these are the very things that made us the people of God. This is how we declared our allegiance to Yahweh by doing these things. In fact, failure to do these things would be to cut ourselves off from the people of God. So it's absolutely essential to what we would call their salvation that they observed these practices. And yet within a 24-hour period, they woke up in the morning. That was essential to them being the people of God and they went to bed that night and now it was no longer an issue. It wasn't just not something they needed to do anymore. I mean, that change is profound and it doesn't it doesn't come easily uh, you've been doing this for thousands of years going all the way back to Abraham and now all of a sudden literally overnight all of that changes it's going to be hard for them to come to terms with that because it wasn't there was a clear sign in the sense that Christ came and rose again. But if you hadn't witnessed that, you've got to take them at their word. You've got to take the apostles at their word that, in fact, Jesus did rise again. For Jews that weren't in Jerusalem and that didn't happen to to witness the resurrection, you have to believe the words of these apostles. And if they're wrong, we're all stuffed. <laughs> I mean, if if they're if they're lying to us, or if they were if they're you know, deluded in what they're claiming that they saw, then that's a real problem. Um, it means that, in fact, things haven't changed and we're actually now going against being the people of God. We're actually breaking our covenant with God. So now we're in real trouble here because these people were wrong about what they said. And so it wasn't just the challenge of changing their behavior. It was trusting that the apostles were telling the truth, um, that it was going on their testimony. And so, again, it's understandable why there was pushback, you know, why we see at times where there's Jewish believers who are convinced by the, the words of the apostles and maybe by the signs that they used to demonstrate these words. Um, they're convinced by that, but many others reject them and not just say, oh, no, you know, look, thanks for, thanks for the message, but, you know, we're not quite convinced by it. No, they actively persecuted these apostles because not only did they not believe them, but they recognized that this message is a threat to the very people of God. We are waiting for God's judgment. We're waiting for him to return for, the, for his, for his um, day of salvation. And so the only way that's going to come about is if we remain faithful. And so what you're telling us to do is the very opposite of that. You're telling us to do something that's going to completely reject God and potentially even put us back in exile, you are a threat to the very stability of the Jewish community. And so it's just natural then that what we're going to see in um, certainly through Paul's preaching, and we saw this in Galatia last week, where they hear Paul preaching in the synagogue and they say, you are a threat to the stability of this community. You're a threat to the very people of God. You are an apostate. You are somebody who is trying to destroy this community. You must be removed. Um, and as we find out for, for Paul, what that meant 
very often was being flogged. It went some very severe punishments that came as a result of this. So all this to say is that change came very difficult, came, came very hard because, again, for this first generation, this was a huge thing to have to come to terms with. Now, that was true for the Jewish people, but it was also true for the Gentiles. For the Gentiles, again, they, at least for the, for the Jewish people, they'd heard of scriptures before. What, all that needed to be convinced of the, um, for the Jewish people was that everything that the scriptures had, were saying was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But they at least had the basis of a foundational understanding in order to, um, you know, to at least understand the context for this message of Jesus Christ. For the Gentiles... They didn't even have the benefit of scripture. They'd never been to synagogue. They didn't know any of this stuff. They didn't know about Yahweh. They knew about Greek and Roman gods. They knew about, um, you know, all of their um, their ancestry and their heritage. And, you know, we've seen a lot of the cultural issues um, that these people were challenged with uh, through in previous episodes. And we'll see more of this, you know, as, the, as these episodes continue. So for them... It was going from tens of thousands of um, angry, uh, arbitrary, capricious gods who needed to be appeased with sacrifices and offerings and worship just so that they wouldn't kill us. We needed to do the right things by them just so that they would not kill us. Yet now you're, you've got, you're coming along saying, actually, all of those gods are nothing. They are not real that that statue that you worship is not a god, it's just a piece of rock. It's of no value whatsoever. There is no god in that rock. It is just a rock. It has no power. It is, it is not going to harm you or do anything to you if you don't worship it properly because, again, it's just a piece of rock. Um, that's all it is. There is actually only one god who is god over everything and he loves you. He, he wants relationship with you. He actually came down and not only came down to reveal himself and actually show us what he looks like, but then he died on a cross. Now, that in and of itself is what was going to turn off most people. Paul says, you know, the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Literally the word moronic, because that was a moronic message. The idea that a God would become flesh is just it's offensive to a Greek thinker. Then to say that that God died on a cross is the height of offense and just the, the lowest possible, most base message you could ever possibly preach. And then to say, you just have to worship that God and he wants to have a relationship with you. And more than that, he wants you to live a life of holiness, a life of like you see lived amongst the Jews, but maybe even more holy than that is what this God requires. Again, this this is crazy town. Not just the challenge to have to completely upend your entire way of doing life, your, this, this life of holiness which was ran totally counter to the way that everybody else was living, but to have to... Um, believe that these gods are of no consequence, that they're actually not real, to turn your back on them. And in doing that, turn your back on all of your family uh, heritage and all of the um, the culture of your city and, and all of that, to turn your back on that, to actively walk away from that and to trust that this Jesus 
was the Messiah, that he was the only true God that is worthy of worship, that's a massive, massive step of faith because, again, the consequences for that, if you're wrong, are dire. They are really, really, really bad if you guys are wrong. So, again, for these guys, the change did not come easily. If, if only, if, on, you know, on the one hand, having to leave behind the gods, but then also to completely upend the way that you used to do things in terms of your morality and then have to live out this new Christian morality, again, that doesn't come easily. Now, again, we think in 2023, particularly living in the West, there, were, there are certain Christian values that we just take for granted. There are things that we do in our society that are grounded in a Judeo-Christian ethic that are actually written into our legal system. There are things that are illegal for us to do. Um, they're actually and, and morally wrong, but they're morally wrong. We understand them to be morally wrong because our Christian heritage revealed them to us to be morally wrong. And so now it's become enshrined in law that there's things that we just simply don't do. And so we take that for granted. We don't do those things, one, because we know it's a bad thing to do, but also because it's illegal to do those things. So again, we just don't think about that as being, um, in fact, to do the opposite is to go against the trend, is actually to go against the flow of the society. Well, there was a point 2,000 years ago where to do those things for the first time was to go against the flow of society. And so to live out this Christian value, it had the cultural pressure in that you were going against the trend. And so with that comes a challenge of just doing these things, doing these things consistently, doing these things in a way that is natural when you're doing something that nobody else is doing, let alone even agrees with. And in fact, they probably think you're crazy for doing those things in the first place. So these challenges, again, they come with that they come as a challenge. They're, they're not that easy to do. And again, for these first Christians, both Jewish and Gentile, there was a lot of challenge just to be Christians in the first place. So anyway, I say all of that as a little bit of a, a background now to um, what's going to happen when in these letters that Paul is writing, because Paul is writing to people who are struggling both in the Jewish and Gentile communities with these challenges. And so it's not that these Christians were terrible people. It's just that they were had their whole lives turned on their heads. And now they're just trying to figure out how to do that. And at the same time, trying to figure out just how to keep working to keep the family alive, still trying to do the very basics of just staying alive in the midst of all of that, and then figuring out how to live out this new Christian values, particularly when you consider that they didn't have a book to do it with. Now, they had Old Testament scriptures. They had scrolls of different Old Testament books if they happened to have those. But in most of the Gentile communities, you don't have any of that stuff because they don't, they don't come from the synagogue. They don't have what we would call Bibles. So they don't have even a book to draw from. So Paul's writing letters, trying to help them figure it out, and those letters are becoming the Bible because that's the only piece of written information that they've got. So they don't even have the benefit of a Bible to open up and say, what does the word say about this? They don't even have that because it hasn't even been made yet. So they're really out on their own here. They've, the, the only thing at their disposal is the spirit, just trying to help them work through these issues through just through the conviction of, of him 
just trying to lead them through all of these things. So all again, all that to really highlight the challenges that have been faced and to give a sense of the need and the urgency for Paul to write these letters to try to help them work through these more practical everyday issues that they're trying to do as Christians. So while we finished the story last week, Paul had written to the Galatians uh, in order to deal with um, this this situation of the Jews have, of the Gentiles not sure whether they need to be circumcised or not and being pressured um, by a certain Jewish group to do so. Now that was that really revealed the problem. Paul was experiencing that in in Antioch. He returned to Antioch. These Jewish teachers were were down in the city saying, you know, did you? Hey, Paul, did you tell them to get circumcised? He said, no, why would I do that? Well, because they need to be circumcised because, you know, they're the people of God now. Well, no, to be the people of God, you don't have to do that anymore. And so the argument breaks out. And so it gets so bad. And the question is obviously one that is of significant importance that they uh, go down to Jerusalem to sort this thing out once for all. And so we read about the story of that in Acts 15 where they have this council and James eventually agrees and decides that the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. And so they write a letter, they, they, a formal letter that can be carried by Paul. And so Paul would have a copy of this letter now signed by the apostles that would say from the head church back in Jerusalem, back from the apostles saying the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised anymore, which is one of the arguments to suggest why Galatians was written before this council, because if Paul had the letter, he wouldn't need to go and write this big long letter to the Galatians. All he would say is enclosed is a copy of the letter from the church in Jerusalem. Um, Now, please stop insisting that they be circumcised. And that's it. But he doesn't do that. He goes into this big explanation. But now he's got a, a letter from the church saying that they don't need to do that. And that becomes for Paul one of the pillars now of his message. He's always been preaching this message. He's always he's going out to the Gentiles and that's his, that's his mission field. But now when he get, he's getting pushback from the Jewish community, he can just hold up this letter and say, nope, here it is. Um, that's, that's all that needs to be said. So that's where we picked up we pick up the story this week. Now, just read a little bit here just to sort of reorientate ourselves to um, to where we to where we're going to get to today. But we're in Acts chapter 16 and it's actually a story that we've looked at covered in a couple of episodes ago when we looked at Mark, but we'll quickly just read it again just to re- sort of reset ourselves to where we are. So Acts 16.36 says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord to see how they were doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he deserted him in Pamphylia and had not continued with the work with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left for, and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, again, we covered that whole story a few episodes ago when we looked at um, we looked at Mark's story. So, um, you know, go back and check out that episode. But what's going on here is that this is Paul's current strategy. His strategy is to do all the work himself. He goes into the towns, he does all the church planting, he does all the establishing, and then he moves on to the next town and then 
so forth and so forth. And this is how he's doing it in these early days. Now the idea is that once once that place is established, you get some, you train up some teachers. Maybe you have some teachers that you leave behind, and they carry on the work of building these communities. Now that's a really slow way to do things. And as we're going to see later on, Paul actually changes that strategy to become much more efficient. Because remember, Paul's a whole idea is that Jesus is coming back in their lifetime, but that won't happen until they preach to the ends of the earth. So if you look on a map, Paul starts in Antioch and he's moving west. Now his goal through all of his missionary journeys is to get to Spain because as far as he understands, Spain is the edge of the earth. They hadn't discovered America yet. They were trying to get to the edge of Europe, which was Spain. So that's why we always sort of see Paul trying to get to that particular destination because Jesus said, preach to the ends of the earth. And once you do that, then I'm going to return. So they took that literally and said, okay, we need to get to the ends of the earth, which again, in their mind, at least in the Western direction was Spain. Now we have to assume that there were other apostles going out to the east and they would have understood that china would have been the edge of the earth they hadn't that as far as they knew that landmass was um was the entirety of the of the earth so they were going as quickly east and west trying to get this message out as fast as they possibly could to bring about the second coming so paul's initial way of doing this he says that he wants to go back through galatia where they just preached and you know they there'd been some troubles, clearly. Um, they had just had all of these issues going on in Galatia. So he wants to go back through these cities to make sure that they're still going okay. You know, I mean, he, he had sent a letter out to them, but you never know. You just don't know what's going on because he literally didn't know because they didn't have phones. They didn't have any way of communication apart from sending these letters. So that's the goal. He's going to continue the journeys west but rather than establishing new communities just check in on them on his way to keep them keep the ministry moving further afield keep keep the ministry moving west so we pick up in verse 16 it says paul came to derby and then to lystra where a disciple named timothy lived whose mother was was jewish and a believer but his father was greek the believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they travelled from town to town. They delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Right, so this is an interesting little piece of the narrative as you can see they've, they've got the letter now from jerusalem and they're taking that with them so again they don't have to do the big arguments anymore and try to convince people that they don't need to be circumcised they just have to show the letter okay the apostles have agreed on this enough said that's that's all that needs to be said about the matter but interestingly they have timothy circumcised now the fact that he wasn't circumcised to begin with he's got a jewish mother but a greek father so the greek so the father in this situation, he's the boss. So in a Roman marriage, if or even in a Greek marriage, if you get a divorce, the children always go with the father. They are his property. So the mother has no say in what happens to the children after the divorce. So he sets the rules for, and ultimately he would set the religion. Now, we don't know um, whether Timothy was you know, more in line with his mum's Judaism or with his dad's Greek beliefs or, or how much even his parents 
combine those or, or where that all fit together. But clearly he wasn't circumcised. So that would suggest that his father was in charge here. His mother didn't have any of that, make any of that call when he was a baby. So he remained uncircumcised. So then why did he get circumcised? Paul is literally carrying a letter saying that followers of the way don't need to be circumcised. And yet they're saying to Timothy, we're going to circumcise you. Why would they do that? Well, um, it had nothing to do with whether or not he was the people of God. It had nothing to do with his salvation. Rather, it was so that he could get a hearing amongst the Jewish people that they're going to be engaged with. Paul is called to preach to the Gentiles, but he's always going to start with the Jewish communities because he's going to find in there a synagogue, a place to preach, people maybe to support him. And if he's carrying along his chief teacher and this person being uncircumcised, well, it's not... You know, it's not impossible, but it just makes things that a little bit more difficult. And so Paul says, look, it's just going to be easier for everyone if you get circumcised. That way we're just going to get an easier hearing when we try to do the work. It's just one less thing we have to we have to fight for. So it's a bit of a compromise just to create an opportunity to reach that Jewish audience. Um, now, it's you know, I guess if we're looking at it today, it would be a little bit like going into a foreign culture and, you know, maybe we're, women wearing a head covering, for example, or, you know, not doing certain things that are perfectly fine to do or doing things that we might otherwise go, yeah, we're not really doing that. Um, in a context where that has a religious connotation. Uh, I remember, for example, we were in Istanbul um, and we're visiting, a mosque, we're visiting the, the Blue Mosque there. Um, and we, we sort of walked in and the first thing you do is you take your shoes off. Now, that's, it's, um, it's polite, but it's also part of the religious practice of going into the, to the mosque. Now, were we saying, well, we're becoming Muslim now because we're, going, we're taking our shoes off? Well, no, of course not. But we're just, it's just good manners. It's just polite. It's just what you do in order to be able to go into that place in the first place. It's just things you just have to do. And so it's, it's something like this. Now, of course, getting circumcised is far more, um, uh, far more of a call than uh, just simply taking off your shoes, but I, I think you get the point. So Timothy is now Paul's new understudy. They've, they had Mark. Mark has gone off with Barnabas. So now they, take, they find Timothy and they bring him along also. And we know Timothy he becomes quite famous throughout the rest of this particular story. Um, but this is where sort of he, he has his origins. And so it's, inter- it's interesting for Paul that not only is he going out and starting these communities, but he's also training up young ministers. He's training up other preachers as well. Now, does he intend for them to live on beyond him and carry on to the next generation? Maybe. But at the, at the very least, um, he's, he's getting others that are going to do the work alongside him and maybe carry on the work even in Paul's lifetime. So that's a very important thing. And this, is, this comes back to the idea of ancient education where you don't just have a schoolroom where you teach people lessons every day, but rather they go with you, they walk beside you. It's the, it's the 12 disciples going and being with Jesus as he does his ministry. So we finish up verse 6. Paul and his companions travelled through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept from the, by the Holy Spirit uh, from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to do that. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And Paul, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, if you look on a map, um, if you sort of look up a a first century map uh, or one of Paul's missionary journeys, um, where Paul starts out in Antioch, the first area that you go when you travel west is Galatia. So Paul's already been there and he's traveled now through there. The next area you come into is Asia Minor. And so particularly areas like Ephesus, recognizable cities from, uh, from Revelation. Now, sort of north of that, so if you travel sort of, if you start from the coast um, where you find Ephesus down, down south, if you travel up that coastline, you're going to eventually get to Troas. Now, Troas is another way of, of saying Troy, so the city of Troy. Um, it's in, um, it's near modern day Gallipoli, if you sort of picture, picture it on the map there. So what, where that is, that coastline is actually the edge of what was Asia Minor, what is now modern day Turkey. Um, that's so that for Paul, that's the next region West Paul's logical next step moving West would be to go into Asia Minor. So when he gets to Troy, what he would have presumed to do then is to head down south and then come around and, and do that whole region and then move over to Macedonia and keep moving towards Spain. In other words, just systematically work west until he gets to Spain. But he gets to Troas and instead of going south, he, he gets called by this man of Macedonia to come over to Europe, to come over to Greece uh, or to Macedonia here. Uh, and so that's kind of not quite the way that Paul had intended to go, but whatever this vision was has convinced him that there's more urgency to get to Macedonia, which is why later on in his third missionary journey is when he actually gets back into Ephesus and into Asia Minor. So we'll pick up that story in a few weeks. But for the moment, he's got to travel over to Macedonia, and this is where he's going to pick up his ministry. Now, we've already seen uh, where Paul was in Philippi. So when um, I did a couple of episodes on that where Paul... Uh, was doing his missionary work in Philippi. So this is where that story picks up. So he goes through Philippi. We won't repeat that story. You can go back and listen to those episodes if you're interested. But having been to Philippi, now is when he moves down to the city of Thessalonica. Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to say thanks so much for listening. I hope you're finding this podcast helpful. If you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review, which will help spread it further. Uh, You might also enjoy the YouTube channel and other social media. You can find a link for these in the show notes. And you might even consider supporting the channel financially. Uh, You can also do that through that same link. But anyway, back to the show. So Paul arrives in Thessalonica then about 49 AD, thereabouts. So during sort of the start of what now becomes his second missionary journey. Um, now, the city itself is quite famous. Um, it was the capital of the region of Macedonia, and it's a very large, very prominent, very very powerful city uh, of its day, and still is today. It's the, you know, the current country of Greece. Um, Athens is the capital, but it was nearly uh, Thessalonica uh, that actually nearly became the capital of modern Greece. Now, the city itself is actually named after Alexander the Great's sister. So Alexander gets like 20 cities named after himself because, you know, he did that. He founded those cities, so he names them after himself. And he just sort of, you know, throws his sister a bone, I guess, and gives her a city to herself. So that becomes Thessaloniki. 
Um, but nevertheless, uh, the the region of Macedonia, Macedonia was where Alexander the Great came from. Now we'll sort of talk about him in a future episode, um, but that region really became the uh, the heartland of what was the Greek Empire. So. Um, Again, Alexander comes from Macedonia, and so you know everything that becomes the Greek Empire after him, it all emerges from that. So it was always the heartland of of what was the Greek Empire. So what that came when eventually that came under the rule of the Romans, and so you know we come to the first century and it's a Roman world. That started when Greeks began to collapse, which began in Macedonia. So that took place in about one sixty eight. BC. It came, Macedonia first came under Roman rule. And then over about the next 20 years, um, eventually they consolidated that occupation. And so it became fully a Roman province. And from that point, the rest of Greece began to fall. And when we get to Corinth, we're going to see uh, the, the, um, how that sort of the fallout of that particular conquest. So during this time, um, once it came under Roman rule, it kind of actually, the region of Macedonia became a staging ground for a couple of Roman civil wars. So whatever, so first, the first one happened when uh, Pompey and Julius Caesar had their falling out and they eventually met in battle in Macedonia. And so that was Mark Antony uh, and eventually Octavian, who were the supporters of Julius Caesar, um, they um, they were sort of uh, sort of there to support. But then, after Caesar was assassinated, those two guys, Octavian and uh, Mark Antony, pursued Brutus and Cassius, who were the murderers of Caesar, again to Macedonia. So now we get a second civil war where we've got the forces of Mark Antony and Octavian versus Brutus and Cassius. Again, having this 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 Roman civil war in Macedonia, so there's been a lot of civil wars there. There's been, and then eventually, when Mark Antony and Octavian themselves had a falling out, and they had a civil war, that also took place in Macedonia. So Macedonia had become a staging ground for uh, for all of these Roman conflicts, and that's naturally going to be devastating to the region. So it was after the second one, after Mark Antony and Octavian versus Brutus and Cassius, um, the, the, what was known as the Battle of Philippi, that um, Mark Antony de- sort of rewarded the city um, for their loyalty and their support of him by declaring it a free city. So it becomes a free city, which what that means for them, it grants them complete autonomy in government, almost complete autonomy in governance and law. They had a lot more freedom than other cities in the Roman Empire had. They had the right to print, to mint their own money um, and even certain tax concessions. So they were rewarded for their loyalty to him during the Civil War and almost as a way of saying, hey, look, sorry for nearly destroying your city as we fought with each other. So for the Thessalonians, they had these certain privileges that many cities didn't. And the way that you keep those privileges in an empire like Rome's is that in Rome is that you don't... Um, you don't cause problems. You know, there's only two rules of empire. Pay your taxes and keep the peace. That's it. You do those two things, everything is going to be fine. Just pay your taxes, keep the peace, and there's not going to be any problems. So that's their that's their uh, um, their prerogative now is to, to do those two things so that we can maintain 
these um, these privileges that we have. So if there's going to be trouble in the city, you're going to get some pressure from everybody to say, hey, don't do that because, um, you know, we don't want to lose these, these certain rights and privileges that we have, which is exactly what we find when we come to the story of uh, Paul's time there. So we pick up the story in Acts 17, verse 1. It says, When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I proclaim unto you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and quite a few prominent women. All right, so that's a pretty standard story. Paul goes in, he preaches in the synagogue, um, and as we find out later on, he gets kicked out of the synagogue, but he convinces some of them, and so he's preaching to people who know Scripture, that know the promise of the Messiah, the Messiah's coming, um, that's yet to happen, and so Paul comes along and says, it's been fulfilled, it's done. Everything you've been waiting for, everything you know about, is, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so this is exactly who, exactly what Paul's message would have been. And as we see is the case, there are a few people who are convinced by this. And this is always true. There are always going to be some people convinced by it, but many more who are not just rejecting the message, but openly hostile to the idea of it. Because if you're wrong about this, then you're threatening the people of God. So this is naturally going to cause angst amongst those who don't accept the message to be true. So we got some people here. So some have persuaded, uh, so including some of the Jews. So the the Jews that we're talking about here, just your typical Orthodox Jews, just Jewish people from the Jewish community in the synagogue. But he also talks about a large number of God-fearing Greeks. Now, a God-fearing Greek is a Greek or a Gentile who has converted to Judaism, which I think we've talked about this before, but that was not uncommon. Um, Judaism had an appeal. It it, it was a message that had appealed to people who were of who used to worship the Greek gods, who are terrible gods, and there's tens of thousands of them, to come over to one god who is a moral god, who is a loving god, is a pretty appealing message. And a god who actually wrote down what he wants, as opposed to some arbitrary god who speaks through priests who are probably corrupt and who are talking nonsense most of the time, a God who actually wrote down what he wants is very appealing. And so you get some of these God-fearing Greeks, and they would have been circumcised, they would have gone through the whole process, they would have been live, actively living as Jewish people, even though they were born Greeks. So some of them have come over as well, and they probably would have been more um, more open to the message of Christianity by virtue of the fact that they've come from, as there is still outsiders, they don't have that cultural heritage that an Orthodox Jewish person would, and so probably would be more open to that message that Paul's preaching. But Luke also mentions here quite a few prominent women. Now, who are these prominent women? Well, they would have been benefactors to the Jewish community, some wealthier women. And we noticed this with Jesus. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but Jesus had his own financial backers who themselves were women. So this wasn't uncommon either. You would have some wealthy women in the ancient world and certainly within the Jewish community who were looking after um, the synagogue, or in Jesus' case, looking after the, the disciples. So you've got this um, sort of mixture of Jewish people coming over to the Christian community, 
And that in and of itself would have posed a threat. You know, it's not just that you're preaching this apostate message. You're actually taking people with you and you're taking some of the money as well, which, you know, that's always going to cause a bit of angst. So Paul is not just um, speaking a message to the Jewish community that is a, that is a threat, but he's actually taking some members too. He's actually breaking the community up which is altogether bad. This is just going to lead to all sorts of troubles that we're going to see later on. So these are some of the Jewish converts that we find, but we also see later on from the letters themselves that there's a number of Gentiles who are part of this uh, community too. So particularly from 1 Thessalonians 4, which talks about issues of sexual immorality. Now, you don't get those sorts of behaviors amongst the Jewish community. That is purely a, an old school Gentile problem. So these are clearly Gentiles who are also being addressed by Paul's letter, which would suggest to us that Paul was converting people elsewhere. And what we note from the letter is that Paul said he was working amongst them. So Paul was plying his trade of tent making or leather working, which we've talked about. He was doing that as well in the city. That's how he was making a living. Again, we talked about that when we spoke about Paul, um, about money and Paul using this uh, as a means to support himself because people like the Thessalonians simply couldn't afford to support him. So Paul was working amongst these people every day. This is actually a more, uh, you can understand more how these people would become converse to his message because, you know, you're only preaching in the synagogue every Saturday, whereas you're working with these guys literally every day, except for, in his case, Sabbath, you're with these people all the time. So it, what's presumably happened here is that there might have even been a church community established in the workshop, um, not, not just in the house, but in, in the workshop as well, amongst these, um, these leather workers. Paul would have been working alongside people of the same trade, these hand workers, well, it would make sense that if they have converted to the message, which some of them seem to have, that would be one of the places where a church would have been established. So you've got this sort of mixed bag of, of believers, um, and all of this is going to come to a head later on. This is all going to, there, there are some troubles that are going to emerge from this, but you can already see um, just the sort of community that Paul is establishing here in Thessalonica. So it goes on, verse 5, But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. Um, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have come here now, and Jason has welcomed them, in, welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postponed and let them go. So the um, Caesar that they're talking about, these Caesar's decrees that they're talking about is the Emperor Claudius. So he ruled from 41 to 54. So he was sort of the long-running emperor and it was under him that the church really became, really took off. These were the early years of the church. So we, we get this inevitable problem where Paul is being 
persecuted, challenged by the Jewish community. But they take it one step further. They actually go out and they seek to arrest Paul. They, they, they get the magistrates to do that. Now, we're going to see another situation like this later on when Paul gets to Corinth. But for the Jewish people, um, Paul has caused problems by going into the synagogue. He's not just preaching an apostate message. He's taking Jews with him. He's bringing them out of the synagogue and, and establishing new communities with them. Now, that is a threat. That is an obvious challenge to the Jewish community. And their um, desire to stop this, they, 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 it's a problem for them. And they can't just simply say to Paul, hey, stop preaching this message and tell these people to come back. That's not going to work. They need to get rid of Paul. Paul is the problem. The people aren't the problem. Paul is the problem here. And so we have to get rid of him. And the only way we're going to do that is to use the authorities. Um, to do it for us. They, they couldn't kill Paul. They wanted him dead or at the very least driven out of the city. They themselves couldn't do that. They didn't have that authority. They needed the magistrates to do that. And the only way that was going to work was that they needed to find something or, or bring a charge up against him that would get the magistrates interested enough to see Paul as a threat to the whole city in order for him to then be removed. So they couldn't just go to the magistrates and say, oh, yeah, this Paul guy is preaching about Jesus Christ, and that's a problem because Jesus actually isn't the Messiah. Um, we, you know, We don't know who that's going to be yet, but it's definitely not Jesus Christ. And so could you do something about it? Because, you know, theologically we disagree with him that's dumb. I mean, that's like two different denominations having an argument over transubstantiation or something and then taking it to the police and saying, can you guys sort out for us this theological dispute? Like, that's just dumb. That's just not going to happen. Uh, and so they need to bring charges against Paul that are actually of interest, that are actually going to stick and get the magistrates um, interested in removing him. And the most obvious one is going to be treason. Paul is preaching a message that is counter to Caesar's decrees, those decrees being worship the emperor as a god. Now, again, we've talked about this before, but this Caesar is God. Caesar holds the empire together because he's God, and to preach anything against Caesar is a threat to the empire. And what greater threat of a message is there than Jesus Christ is actually the true Son of God, King, Savior, Lord, all of those things, as opposed to Caesar. Caesar is not a God. Jesus Christ is the only God. All other gods are nothing before him. All of that is problematic. That is actually a treasonous message. And this is the reason why Christians were persecuted through the first few centuries of the church. And this is exactly what they're picking up on. And look, what they're saying about Paul is not untrue. This is the message he was preaching, but they're trying to amplify it and highlight it to the magistrates so that the magistrates themselves would step in and then um, have them deal with it. So they couldn't find Paul. Instead, they go to the house of a guy named Jason. We don't know who this Jason was, but probably the guy who was um, housing Paul when he was staying there. And so instead they say, look, they calm the situation down and they just simply say, look, pay some bail and let's all pretend this goes away. Because it's one thing to charge somebody with treason and that's all good and well, but it's another thing to riot. The riot was the problem as far as the magistrates are concerned because, all right, look, if we find this Paul guy, we'll deal with him. But the bigger problem we've got right now is the fact that you're rioting. If the Romans find out 
that we're doing, we're breaking rule number two, which is keep the peace. If we are not keeping the peace because we're having this riot, we're all going to be in trouble. We could lose the privileges that we have. So how about we just stop rioting, like just calm down and uh, let's just all go back to normal. And if we see Paul, we'll deal with him quietly. We'll deal with him the way that we always do rather than doing this by a riot. So that's Paul's sort of early experience in Thessalonica. And now the thing to keep in mind is that Paul's only been here for a couple of months. All right. So he's not been here for very long. He's established a small group and already it's blown up. And so he's realizing, look, it's, it's time to go. And so in fact, the story goes on in verse 10. It says, as soon as it was night, the, um, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Again, that's the standard practice. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So there are our um, our Greeks, again, are converts to Judaism, in some case, prominent Greek women, so some wealthy women who were probably acting again as benefactresses to the city, uh, to, the, to the synagogue. Um, but when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. All right, so a few things to point out here. Paul's in Thessalonica. He's had all of these problems that have gone down. And so he realizes it's time to go. I've just got to get out of here. So he goes down to Berea and like internet trolls, these Jews pursue him down to Berea and continue the persecution down there. So eventually Paul realizes, look, I've got to get out of here. Um, they, they send him down to Athens just to get right out of, not even just, let's get it right out of Macedonia, right? Let's go down to Greece. Okay, let's just get out of this whole region and just go and find somewhere, a big city like Athens, go and hide, go and just sort of hang out in there and let's just try to figure out what our next steps are going to be. So as the story goes on, well, we know that eventually uh, Timothy and Silas meet him down in Thessalonica, meet him down in Athens. Um, he says, all right, now I want you to go back to Thessalonica to just to, to see how things are going, just find out what's going on. In the meantime, Paul ends up down in Corinth. So the where this story ends up is with Paul down in Corinth and Timothy and Silas back in Thessalonica um, just trying to figure out what's going on, just trying to see what the situation is because Paul's left them behind in a really vulnerable state. They're, they're, they're a church of only a couple of months. Um, I mean, any anyone that's been doing something for just a couple of months is very new to this. They're, they're not sure really what's going on and particularly – this Christian faith, um, you know, there's, there was so much more that Paul had to teach them that he wanted to get established in them. But on top of them being uh, not properly trained and formed, they're, they're still getting persecuted. We've got persecution still happening to these poor Thessalonians on top of the fact that they don't really know what they're doing. They're still very young in the faith. And so Paul has to, Paul's obviously really concerned about them. Um, they're, they're being challenged. Both the Gentiles are being challenged because they've, they've forfeited the city gods. They're, they're a threat to Caesar, but also the Jewish 
um, community is being persecuted because they've left the synagogue. And so on the one hand, you've got the people in the synagogue saying to the Jewish Christians, hey, just look, come back, okay? Paul is a false preacher. That's why he left. Just come back to the synagogue and we'll just pretend this never happened, okay? So just come back and there's pressure on them to do that. On the other hand, you've got the Gentiles being pressured because they've forfeited their the the um culture the the city's gods and their family gods and they're offending those particular gods and so their own families and friends are saying come back stop worshiping that fake jesus and that idiot paul whoever he was just okay wake up to yourself come back into the fold so there's pressure on both sides for this community to just go back to the way things were Um, And for Paul, naturally, this is a problem. This is something that he's really concerned about because, again, this is a really young community at the same time. All right, so it's into this situation that Paul writes our first Thessalonians. So Timothy returns from Thessalonica with a report of what's going on. Now, there's some good news and there's also some bad news. So the good news is that there's still a church there, which is just amazing when you consider the pressure that they're facing, the persecution that they're experiencing, and being so young that there is even a church still there in Thessalonica is absolutely remarkable. So Paul is just over the moon to hear this, but also concerned too because, you know, there's still a church there, but it may not last for very long because they're still facing this ongoing persecution. And remembering too that it's weeks; it takes weeks to get to and from these places. So, and a lot can change in that in that space of time. So Paul has to write to them first of all to encourage them in the midst of this persecution. So he does that in the first chapter. Um, you know, they're hey guys, well done for still being there. Um, but hang in there. This is normal for Christians. This is what we got to expect. Nothing here is unusual. You've just got to be strong through this and just trust that God's going to carry you through this. Then there's also some challenges in that now that Paul's gone, the people that are his enemies back in Thessalonica are undermining him, as you would expect that they would. The same way they did in Galatia, they're also doing in Thessalonica, charging Paul with being a false prophet or false preacher, that he's just in it for the money, all of these sorts of accusations. So Paul spends chapter two dealing with this these concerns that Paul is just a, a preacher who is just in it for the money, he's a liar. Um, and all of these sorts of things. And so he spends chapter two just trying to reestablish his authority there that, hey, not only um, do I care about you, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in it for the money. I proved that in the fact that I never took money from you, right? I worked for a living while I was amongst you. I paid my own way. If I was in it for the money, believe me, I would have taken your money. I wasn't in it for the money. See? And you know that. You worked with me. You know the sort of quality of person that I am. Um, and then there's still some other challenges. There's still some um, issues of, of morality that they need to deal with because, again, these are young Christians who, as we said earlier on in this episode, they, they're learning this for the first time. Old habits die hard. And so Paul has to remind them of some of the um, ethical practices, particularly around sexual immorality, that apparently is still going on. Now, those things simply would have been that they would have had gone to meals and at the end of every meal there would have been a big drinking party called a symposium and that would have involved a lot of sex or just even going to brothels. I mean, this was just absolutely normal behavior for everyone in the ancient world. Just that sort of sexual immorality was just par for the course. This is what you do um, in the same way that 
guys would just go and play golf or whatever. You go to brothels. I mean, this is just normal sort of behavior that these guys are engaged in. And no one would have batted an eyelid. Married men, it wasn't a problem. You just do these things because that's just what we do. So for them, that absolutely normal standard behavior, now being told that this is this is sinful in God's eyes, that's going to be a hard thing to come to terms with. And so these guys are still engaged with some of this stuff. And Paul's saying, you've got to stop that. You've just you can't do that anymore. I've told you before, I'm saying it again, you got to cut that stuff out. But then there are, there's another concern, and this is a theological concern. One of the issues, that, you know, Paul's always preaching that Jesus is coming back tomorrow, that he's going to come back in our lifetime, and that's the core of his message, and this is what drives him in, in his preaching. But then what seems to have happened is that someone in Thessalonica has died. One of the members of the church has died, which happened all the time. You die very young in the ancient world. And so that would have been a surprise. But for the Thessalonians, they're going, well, hang on a second, Paul. You said that we would not see, we would not see death again, that we're going to see the resurrection. And yet this person has died. What happens to the dead? Do they how does the resurrection work for those guys? Because for the Greeks, their understanding was that once you're dead, you're dead. You don't come back from that. You just turn back to dust. How does a resurrection apply to somebody who is just a pile of dust in the ground? Paul says, no, no, no. Okay, look, trust me, trust me. Um, they're going to be all right, right? He says the dead in Christ are going to rise first and then we who are alive and remain are going to be going to be with him in the clouds. So I promise you, these people that have died they're okay. They're going to be resurrected as well. So it's dealing with some theological confusion. And then also he hints towards a certain group or some of the people who are coming to church and who are just not contributing to the meal. Now, we've talked about this before, but the way that the church service works is that you have a meal together. This is what you do. And the way that these meals get funded is that everybody brings something to contribute, whether it be some food or whether it be some money. Everyone has to bring something to share in with this meal when we get together for church. Now, as with these situations, you're going to get people who sometimes just can't afford to bring something. And of course, they're not going to get kicked out. They're going to be welcome. And that's that's perfectly fine. But then you're going to get a situation where you're going to have some people who are going to go, well, you know, this is a free meal. Um, you know, that's that's a good opportunity because it's a time when meals are hard to come by. You don't know if you're going to get a meal that day, but there's this community over here that, that they do a free meal every week or they do a meal every week. And, you know, what if I just turned up and all I've got to say is, yeah, I believe in Jesus and, oh, I forgot to bring some money this week. I promise I'll bring it next week. I promise. And then next week rolls around and they just keep forgetting. And soon you realize, okay, these people – they're just in it for the food. They're just trying to take advantage of our generosity. Now, you can you can wear that a little bit, but when it's all the time and when it's obvious that you're coming here not for the practice of your faith, which is meant to be generosity, but rather you're taking advantage of already impoverished people, that's a problem. So Paul warns them. He says, hey, guys, you've got to cut that out, okay? Just please stop doing that. That is not appropriate behavior for this community. So he sends that letter off to Timothy, and then Timothy returns sometime later on with a continued report. Now, the fact that we have a second Thessalonians is because first Thessalonians didn't really do the job, and that's the same thing we're going to see in Corinthians. So there's a second letter that's been sent to them dealing with basically the same problems. Now, 
the persecution, as you would expect, has continued on, and so he spends the first chapter dealing with this continued persecution. Um, and it's either the same or it's got worse, but whatever the case is, that persecution is not going away. So Paul has to deal with that firstly, so he deals with that in chapter 1. But then there's more confusion about the resurrection. So they're saying, okay, Paul, cool, we get it, the dead will rise in Christ, that's fine, great. But somebody, someone... Um, brought a message from you saying that the resurrection's already happened. Paul's going, what are you even talking about? I never sent that message. What, what's going on? This is this is fake news, right? This is a spam email written in my name. I promise you I didn't send this note. And apparently on this note, what it was saying was, again, the resurrection's already happened. And Paul says, look, trust me, trust me. When the resurrection happens, you'll know about it, right? There's all these signs. These are the things you need to look out for. I promise you, when the resurrection happens, you will know about it. So whatever is supposed to have come from us, I promise you it's fake news. It's a spam email. Don't worry about it. So that's issue number two. And then finally, we've got this continued behavior of these people taking advantage of the community. Now Paul's getting frustrated, okay? Before it was a warning, before it was like, hey guys, cut that out. Now he's just getting frustrated because he's told them when he was there. He's told them again with his first letter. Now he's having to say to them again, hey guys, this is now just a real problem. Now you're just being straight up disobedient. Now we need to actually start to take real measures. And so this is where he throws out this, this um, instruction. Anyone who doesn't work shall not eat. In other words, if you're not willing to work and contribute to the meal, you don't get to be part of the meal. It's as simple as that. If you don't want to, if you're not going to bring something along, then you're not welcome at the meal anymore. And to not be welcome at the meal is to effectively say you can't come to church. Now, that's not a permanent ban. If you wake up to yourself, start contributing and not taking advantage of the community then you'd be welcome back in but whatever the case is this thing you're doing right now absolutely has to stop so that's our second thessalonians well first and second thessalonians in a real nutshell um hopefully that's sort of a helpful sort of background context but this kind of leaves us now in our story with paul in corinth so paul is in corinth while all of this is happening and as we know from reading Corinthians, those guys had their own stuff that was going on as well. So we're going to pick up that story as we continue on next week. But otherwise, thank you so much for joining me. I hope this has been helpful and I look forward to seeing you next week. All the best.